Hello, welcome to this podcast. My name is Samuel Fanous. I'm the publisher at the Bodleian Library, and my guest today is the author, editor, and journalist, Rebecca Abrams. Rebecca. Hello. Hello, Rebecca. Rebecca is the author of numerous books. Her most recent title is Jewish Treasures from Oxford Libraries, which she has co-edited together with Cesar Marshan Haman. And she's joining me today to speak about her book, Jewish Treasures from Oxford Libraries. Rebecca, perhaps I could begin by asking you, how did the Bodleian's collection of Jewish books and manuscripts begin? Um, yes, well, it's a very good question. I mean, the, the, the Jewish books and manuscripts actually began with the library itself at the very end of the 16th century. Um, uh, the, 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 the idea for the library was the brainchild of, of Thomas Bodley, after whom it's named, and, and he, in 1598, proposed to the university that they re-establish the library at Oxford, which had been very neglected, um, and it actually suffered very badly at the hands of the Protestant reformers in 1550. And Thomas Bodley um, uh, came from a staunchly sort of Protestant background, uh, of a humanist um, tradition, and that always included uh, Hebrew along with Greek and Latin. So his vision for the library included Hebrew manuscripts from the very start. And in fact, um, the very first book that the Bodleian acquired in 1601 was a Hebrew manuscript of Genesis with an um, interlinear Latin translation. Um, so really the, 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 the Hebrew um, and, and Jewish aspects of the, of the collections of the Bodleian were, were absolutely uh, central from the very beginning. And from there, how did the collections grow and how did Oxford become such an important repository of Jewish manuscripts and books? Well, I think like all of these things, in part, it was just due, due to you know, good timing. Um, the 17th century, you know, as I said, the, the library, this, this, this project of, to set up the library again, to rehabilitate the library, began at the very end of the 16th century. Um, so it coincided with the 17th century, which was a period of uh, huge interest, burgeoning interest in Oriental studies. And Oxford was at the intellectual centre of that, from, again, from, from the start. So you have a lot of top scholars and top collectors in this burgeoning field at Oxford, um, or with close connections to Oxford. I'm thinking about people like John Selden and Edward Pocock and Robert Huntingdon. Um, and they were also all connected to one another. So you have these networks of people um, who are connected to each other intellectually, physically, geographically. And these, they, they left significant collections of Hebrew manuscripts, um, which were then either given or sold to the university on their deaths. So in other words, Oxford was just the best place to be having this particular library, setting up this particular library at this particular time. And, and we should, of course, mention a particularly key figure in the first half of the 17th century was William Lord, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Chancellor of Oxford. Um, he endowed the first chairs in Hebrew and in Arabic at Oxford, which I think it was the other way around, it was Arabic and then Hebrew. Um, and he really embarked on a full-scale uh, sort of intellectual arms race, is how it's described in the chapter on the Lord Collection, to acquire manuscripts for the university. Um, so in other words, the Bodleian you know, was, was collecting these, these Jewish manuscripts and books at a, a really, really good time. And then, then as time went on, as the centuries went on, it built from there on these strong early foundations and in turn then became an attractive place for collectors and collections to, to, to come. Although in some cases that was actually quite controversial. Um, in one of the later collections, the Michael collection, there was actually fierce opposition to it leaving Germany and coming to Oxford. But nevertheless, you know, Oxford became a strong magnet for, for, um, for the, this kind of material. I like that description, intellectual arms race. 
Um, mm. You you uh, you talk about William Lord, and uh, the book is in fact structured. He's such a strong figure. The book is structured around individual collectors and collections. Yes. Why, why have you and um, Cesar, your co-editor, chosen to structure the book this way? Well, the manuscripts and books within the collections, um, the, the Jewish manuscripts and books, have been written about in some cases before. Not all of them, but but some of them have. But the stories of the collectors, the stories of how these collections came to exist and the stories of how the collections found their way to Oxford have not been told before and not been told all in one place before. Um, so many of the collectors' names will mean very little to the general public, to most people, and they, they're very well known within their with the scholars in the field, but, but not beyond. So things like Edward Pocock or Herman Michael or Matteo Canonici, you know, most people, most people I, I certainly didn't know anything really about these people before working on this book. So one reason for the one really important reason for structuring the book in this way is that we wanted to tell the stories of these remarkable collectors to explain who they were and why they're historically interesting. Um, now, a second reason is that we wanted to explore the relationship between each collector and the manuscripts and books they collected. So it's easy to forget, I think, that the collections only exist because of their original collectors. We, we tend to think about what's in a collection rather than how it came to exist in the first place, why it came into being, what purpose it served for the collector. So we wanted also to tell that previously rather neglected story of the collections in relation to their original collectors. Mm, OK, um, let's take a look at the book itself for a moment. I've got a copy here in front of me and uh, I'm just flicking through it um, and one of the first things that strike me about it is that it's a highly illustrated work and I wanted to ask how did you and Cesar your co-editor go about choosing the images for the book? Yes we had um, Cesar and I had um, various objectives I mean three objectives really in mind in, in relation to to the book and in relation to the choice of visual images First of all, we wanted to showcase the beauty of the collections, you know, for readers who wouldn't normally see them or know about them. We wanted to show in beautiful detail how lovely they are, how gorgeous they are. Um, the second thing that was important to us, we wanted um, to show both their visual and their textual interest. And in that, um, I was very much guided by Cesar's extensive knowledge of the collections. And we were directed by the authors of each of the chapters in the book, um, who are all scholars and experts on the collections. Um, and and they, they obviously knew which texts they wanted to illustrate to accompany uh, the stories that they were telling, the chapters that, that, that they'd written. So um, and then the third uh, very important uh, um uh, criteria for us was that we wanted to convey the visual range. We wanted to show the diversity of influences and regional differences. I mean, and, and it is, you know, it's very, uh, it's very extraordinary, you know, what's there. So we have Sephardic, visually Sephardic influences, Ashkenazi, Islamic, Christian, Gothic. There are examples of Spanish heraldry in some manuscripts, you know, Italian Renaissance floral designs in others. It, it's a very, very visually diverse collection. We wanted to show that as lavishly and as much detail as we possibly could. Mm. I'll come back to the diversity issue that you raised, which is very interesting. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I just want to pick up on the uh, individuals and the collectors themselves and ask you, why did these individuals make these collections? Were they driven by the same motives or were there were there different differing motives in each case? 
Well, they, in fact, they were driven by very different motivations, really quite to my surprise how different they were. Um, and just to give you a, a, a sort of rough idea of that, I mean, you have somebody like Edward Pocock in the early 17th century, who was really motivated by uh, a wonderful kind of a great integrity in terms of his intellectual and scholarly curiosity and appetite. He was a real scholar. Then you have William Lord, who we've spoken about before, in the, uh, also in the early 17th century, who was fueled by political and religious ambition, absolutely no question. I mean, Lord ended up um, being executed in the Tower of London, but uh, but he was he rose a, a long way. You know, he he was a very very influential, important, powerful figure in the early 17th century, and his motivation for collecting was. Um, you know, he wasn't uninterested. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wasn't uninterested in 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 the, the scholarly content, but his main purpose was to secure the prestige of Oxford University, of which he was by then Chancellor, and to secure the position and the safety and the security of the, the Reformed Church of England, both at home and abroad. So he was a very political animal and his collections were, were driven by that. Then, you know, at the end of the same century, at the end of the 17th century, you have David Oppenheim, chief rabbi of Prague, one of the one of only two Jewish collectors behind these collections um, in the book, the ones that have chapters in the book. There were more than that, um, in fact, reflected in the collections. But um, but David Oppenheim, he, he was driven by um, a hugely ambitious goal, which was to amass the largest library of Jewish manuscripts and books in the world. And he had three reasons for doing that. He wanted it as a practical resource as a Jewish leader. It was a passion project for him to do with his, his commitment to, to Judaism. Um, and it was also an intellectual mission to collect and preserve Jewish intellectual culture. So completely different, really, um, in, in terms of compared to William Lord. And then again, you have somebody like Canonici, Matteo Luigi Canonici, who was an 18th century uh, former Jesuit priest in Venice, born in Venice, um, working in and around northern Italy. And he was passionate about books, but he was primarily motivated by the need to make money. And he was constantly complaining about how he didn't have enough money. Um, you know, this was his trade, his profession. Um, and then just as a fourth example, you have, um, actually, I think that's my fifth example. You have Benjamin Kennicott uh, in the middle of the 18th century, an Oxford scholar, son of, um, I think he came from Totnes. He came from quite lowly beginnings, but he became a very important Oxford scholar and librarian of the Radcliffe Camera, uh, the Radcliffe Library, sorry. And he was motivated, again, for very different reasons, he was motivated by a mad and brilliant idea, which was to compare letter by letter every single copy of the Hebrew Bible in existence in the British Isles and as far beyond as possible. And why did he want to do that? Well, to identify the oldest and most authentic versions of the original biblical text. But so as you can see, you know, just from those five individuals, their motivations were very different. And I found that a really exciting and fascinating and unexpected aspect of the, of the book. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we've gone from um, um, from Oxford to Prague to Venice, uh, three cities you mentioned in, in, in your answer to the last question. Um, what is the geographic spread of the manuscripts and books discussed themselves as opposed to the collectors? Do they range across the the um, across the globe? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a there's a big time spread. We should say, you know, they they span um, ten centuries, um, and they reflect Jewish culture and religion under the Arab, Ottoman, and Christian rule. And they stretch from Syria and Persia to the Iberian Peninsula to Italy, Germany, and France. So you've got a big geographic spread, um, partly because people 
sourcing the manuscripts and books were were working globally. They often were located, uh, people like Pocock and Huntington were actually based in Aleppo for some of the time that they were doing their collecting. People based in Oxford were nevertheless using agents spread all around the world to, to, to find things for them. Um, and then partly, of course, because people travel and the manuscripts and books that they have travel with them. So uh, you might get a single manuscript that's, that's moved from um, Spain to North Africa and then into Northern Europe. So there's a big geographic spread uh, represented in different ways. And also reflecting that, we have a big range of scripts and languages reflected in these manuscripts. So um, Hebrew, Aramaic, Judeo-Arabic, Portuguese written in Hebrew characters and so on. And, and different scripts, as I said, as well. So, yes, it's a very, very diverse collection in terms of, of, of um, where, where the material comes from and, and how, it, how it appears uh, visually. And what about the books themselves, Rebecca? Um, what kinds of books and manuscripts are in these collections? For example, are they all um, books that are relevant to scholars? Are they books of scholarship or are there um, different genres and types of, of, of books as well? Well, I thought they're certainly all relevant to scholars, um, but they're enormous, enormously um, various in their in, in their in what they are. Um, so you have we have um, biblical texts, liturgical texts, Talmudic, philosophical, Kabbalistic. There are um, books about medicine. There are books of grammar and lexicography, and there's other materials besides. So there, there's poetry. There's letters. There's account books. There's there's all sorts of stuff, and there's. Um, one of the things I think is very interesting as well is it's not just the text themselves that's very interesting and revealing. In some cases, the marginalia and the bindings contain equally interesting information uh, uh, to the text. So, um, for example, we have the signatures um, of the Italian censors on some of the, the manuscripts. Um, many of these censors were themselves Jewish converts to Christianity, um, working for the Vatican, like the Vatican in Rome. Um, but uh, so there's a that's a sort of slightly bizarre thing that you can see this evidence of the constraints on Jewish intellectual life being uh, enforced by people who themselves had been raised as Jews. Um, another example of interesting marginalia is you have the signatures of the scribes. So that I'm thinking now of the, the, the manuscripts in the Kennecott collection. Um, the, you, we can see who who um, who made these texts and that reveals in turn really interesting connections between them they were obviously aware of each other in some cases sometimes they were working from copies of of, of other people's um work it, it shows a uh, a network a professional network of these scribes working at a very very high level um and then uh, the third area in which the marginalia can be interesting is the signatures of the owners. Um, you can see how it's, a particular text has passed through different hands and in different places. So all of that, that is terribly interesting. So, so what these manuscripts yield is often, often goes far beyond the, um, the overt and explicit uh, um, content. And... Um... Are there any that, can I ask a slightly invidious question, are there any that stand out as particularly significant to you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a really difficult question. I mean, it's almost impossible to choose one because they're, they're all so interesting and important in different ways. But um, I can give you just two examples of, of, of what things that are contained in, in these collections, which are really important. One is the, the works by the medieval rabbi and scholar Moses Maimonides, who's enormously influential figure. Uh, and uh, his commentaries on the Torah 
and his codes for how to live according to Jewish law. You know, we have various copies of, of, of that, those owned by different people at different times, but also really importantly, we have the, 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 the versions amended by him in his own hand and one, one copy is signed off by him. So it's the version that he would say, yes, this one's okay to go to print or you know, to, not to print, but to be medieval times, so it wouldn't have been to print, but to be, to be fair copied. So, um, so, you know, we have really important uh, insights into how he was thinking and working and areas in which maybe he changed his mind, but also what he was authorizing. So that's really important. And um, sorry, just, just for readers who, just for listeners who may not be familiar with Maimonides, could you just remind us very briefly who he is? Yes, so he was um, he was a medieval um, scholar. Uh, he was the rabbi in Egypt. Um, he held various different positions, but he was also a physician um, uh, to Saladin. He was, a, I mean, it's really almost impossible to, to underestimate his influence. And he wrote two key texts. One was the Mishnah Torah and the other was the Guide to the Perplexed. And both of these have have become I mean, absolutely seminally important books in uh, in the evolution of, of Jewish life and Jewish thinking. Um, Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Sorry, carry on. You were you were saying. Well, so the other, I, mean, I think I think you know, it it is really really difficult to single out anyone in particular. But the other, I mean, as a collection, I think the Kennecott collection is also very important. It's very small in size. It's one of the smallest, the smallest. It's only ten manuscripts of Hebrew of the Hebrew Bible in all. But it's extremely important in terms of its quality, um, both the aesthetic beauty. It's um, the, the, the centerpiece of the Kennecott Bible, a 15th century, uh, comes from 15th century Spain. It's the most beautiful surviving medieval Hebrew Bible anywhere in the world. And it's certainly one of the, 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 the absolute jewels of the, of the Bodleian Library collections. Um, but the Kennecott collect these 10 manuscripts. They also show the skill of the scribes. And as I said, the professional and geographical connections between them. Um, but the contents of the manuscripts are also very important, um, not least because in a way they achieve the exact opposite of what Benjamin Kennecott intended. So they preserve the Jewish Masoretic tradition of textual transmission, which Kennecott himself was keen to diminish. So Kennecott was trying to say, actually, this way of transmitting the text is unreliable. But in the process of collecting these texts, he's helped to preserve them. So so it, it's also a really important example. Um, there are other examples within the collections, but it's an important example for me of how the people collecting the, these manuscripts and books originally um, might have had one purpose in mind, but the collections have a life of their own and they, they might serve, they've, they've, they've gone on to serve different purposes and to reveal different information and to be valued and, um, well, yeah, valued is, again, almost an understatement, to be hugely, hugely important for maybe quite, quite different reasons than the original collectors intended. So that's that's another example of an of, a, of why the Kennecott collection is important. But it, it's not it's not alone in being important in these in, in one way or another. So it, it is really, really difficult to, to single out one collection or one collector. Well, speaking of collectors and individual collections, um, all the chapters in this book are dedicated to individual collectors or the collections they made, except for one, uh, and that's the Geniza collection. Can you tell us, Rebecca, what a Geniza is and what it contains? Um, yes, so a Geniza is um, oh, it's the word for a repository, um, which is in a synagogue, um, and they're in synagogues all around the world, um, a repository for sacred texts or for texts written in the sacred language of Hebrew. Um, so 
anything that has the word for God uh, is considered sacred and can't be just thrown away. Um, it has to be carefully buried in the right way. Um, so while uh, any text with, um, with, with anything in, I mean, it, it's been interpreted in different ways or in different places, but um, in this particular Geniza that we're talking about in the collection, um, it's from the Ben Ezra synagogue in Fustat, which is now Cairo, it's a suburb of Cairo now, but Fustat was the capital in, of Egypt before Cairo in the medieval period. And um, in the case of the Ben Ezra synagogue, the Geniza really came to just contain everything written in Hebrew because they didn't they, they wanted to sort of you know be on the safe side I think <laughs> um, and what would happen is the stuff everything would be just gathered in the Geniza and then eventually it would be interred in the kind of necessary way but the Geniza in um, in, uh, in Fustat just became absolutely full of stuff and it, 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 I'm not quite sure why it didn't get sort of moved on but it what happened then in the 19th century was that it gradually came to light that there was um, uh, buried. I mean, the Geniza itself had become buried, which is kind of interesting because it, the word itself means, I think, concealed. So, but it become it just become over uh, overgrown with rubbish from the centuries. And then this material began to come to light, and um, people realized, scholars and collectors realized, there was a really, really valuable repository of stuff there. And they didn't weren't, they weren't quite sure what stuff. Um, and then it came to light that it was uh, really important uh, material from the Geniza of the Ben Ezra synagogue. So then there was a, a, a really race against time. It was a very exciting um, moment, really, in, in collecting history um, between um, Neubauer, who was the librarian at Oxford, and he was the deputy librarian at Oxford, and a very colourful character in Cambridge called Solomon Schechter. And these two men were kind of going head to head to try and get material for their libraries, for the Cambridge Library and for the, the Bodleian in Oxford, um, from the Geniza. Um, and um, the now now there's been a collaboration fantastically in 20th century, 21st century. There's been a collaboration between the two universities. So they now work together and they pooled their resources. But um, but at the time, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, it was a very, very fierce and quite bitter uh, battle between these two very interesting men um, for who could get the most material from the Geniza. And what it contains is. Um, Again, astonishingly diverse, and it, it provides a really wonderful window onto medieval Jewish life um, in the in the Mediterranean area, but also beyond, because this this community was very connected. It was a very important community. It was very connected out in all directions, and you have everything in there from um, sacred texts to recipes to children's school books to love letters. You know, almost everything. A lot of the um, the uh, uh, the, um, what's the word, you know, the, the stuff, the ordinary stuff um, is actually more, much more of that is in Cambridge than in Oxford because the Neubauer um, uh, and his team in Oxford were much more interested in collecting the very sort of scholarly um, texts. So there's there's more of that in Oxford and hugely important texts. But, the, but as a whole, what's really interesting is uh, when you pull what's in Oxford and Cambridge, you just have this fabulous window onto a world that would have you know, would have been lost otherwise. Mm. And these images, uh, the the images of the Geniza fragments, and uh, the many books and manuscripts that are reproduced in your book, um, is it are they only available to scholars who come to Oxford, or can people see the images themselves elsewhere? 
So in the case of the Geniza uh, fragments, they have been digitized uh, thanks to very generous benefactions from the Polanski Foundation um, and I think maybe some others as well. Um, but the uh, so that that collection is actually mostly available online and there has been huge efforts to digitize as much of the what, el what else is in the, the collections as possible. And the, the aim is to get everything digitized eventually, although, of course, you know, that that requires um, support from from outside. But it's very expensive, a costly business. But more and more of what's in the Oxford collections, the, the, both in the libraries of Oxford and in the Bodleian Library itself, are available online, which is just fantastic. Um, obviously, there's nothing compares with actually seeing uh, a physical uh, manuscript or a physical book, but but they are available online, and we um, you know, the aim is for more and more of them to become available online. And just to remind listeners, uh, the those images are can be seen uh, that you've been talking about, Rebecca. They can be seen at uh, digital .bodleian ox.ac.uk and of course they are uh, many of them are reproduced in the book we've been discussing today Jewish treasures from Oxford libraries edited by Rebecca Abrams my guest today and together with Cesar Marshan Haman Rebecca it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much thank you